So we're in our, uh, and by the way, if you're watching online this morning, welcome to our online service. And if you're a guest in either online or just in here this morning in person, uh, we're in the third week of this series, Politics, Religion, and Church Unity. And perhaps if you've missed some of the other weeks, if you just want to get a comprehensive view of, of where we're, what we've been talking about and where we're going, uh, you can go to YouTube and type in Burning Bush Baptist Church and go to our Facebook page and that kind of thing. So we're in the third week, and I want to begin this morning with a question. Have you ever noticed, and like I've said each week, this could get a little bit awkward because we are talking about political kind of things. And so we're just get awkward and uncomfortable together. But have you ever noticed, no matter which political party you belong to, that all Christ followers think that Jesus would be part of their party if he was alive today? I mean, if you ask Republicans, they'd be like, yeah, Jesus is all about the values of our party and, and he would be a Republican. If you ask Democrats, they'd be like, Jesus is all about care and concern for people, and he would be all about being a Democrat. And it's kind of amazing, isn't it, if you, and we've been talking a lot about this, if you filter your faith through your politics, then it's easy for Jesus' words to be so red, right? Or Jesus' words to be so blue if you do it that way. But what we've been saying is you need to filter, put your faith first and then filter your politics through that. And the inter interesting thing is this. If you were to ask me, and you would give me an assignment, Dennis, would you go to the teachings of Jesus? Could you write a sermon supporting the Republican platform? And I would say, yes, I could do that. And if you were to say to me, Dennis, could you write a sermon based on the teachings of Jesus that would be in sync with the Democratic Party platform, could you do that? And I would say, yes, I could do that. And it's just amazing, too, how sometimes you the different viewpoints even use the same words and verses of Jesus. You know, Tony Evans is a famous African-American preacher. And he says this. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. I love that. Because it is absolutely true. Jesus didn't come to this earth to take sides. He came to take over. Jesus came to establish his upside-down kingdom. He came, most kings, they want their subjects to die for them. Jesus came to die for his subjects. Jesus came to establish this upside-down kingdom where those that had power and resources would use it for everybody else. It was a totally different type of kingdom. And the kingdom of God, everybody is invited to participate in. But this is, just, this is just my opinion, and you can agree or disagree with it. I don't believe any political party is ever going to fully line up with God's kingdom. I think the Democrats have a little bit or a lot of it, whatever you want to look at it. I think the Republicans have a lot of it or a little bit, however you want to look at it. But neither one of them is going to ever fully line up 
with kingdom values. And that's why it's so important. And that's been the gist of this series. It's not really about politics and stuff like that as much as it is about division. Not allowing politics to divide us. Because first and foremost, we need to be Jesus followers. And then we need to be party members second. So what we're going to do this morning in the third part of this series, we're going to go to look at the Apostle Paul. And we're going to go over to the book of Corinthians. And in the book of Corinthians, we're going to look at a passage this morning where Paul's going to kind of remind us to focus on the main thing. And of course, what's the main thing? Jesus Christ. Because a lot of us get sidetracked, don't we? I mean, we get sidetracked by politics. We get sidetracked by just being busy. We get sidetracked by sports and television and social media and pandemic rhetoric. I mean, it's easy to get sidetracked. And so we're just going to look at this passage this morning. And I just want to kind of give you kind of a setup for the passage. So the Apostle Paul, he steps off or he steps into the pages of history in the book of Acts, in the early part of the book of Acts. And when we first meet Paul, Paul hates Christians, right? You remember that? And his job His very job is to persecute Christians. Paul's responsible for killing Christians. And then we get to Acts chapter 8, and Paul becomes a a believer. He becomes a Christ follower, and it changes his life. And he begins to tell as many people as he possibly can about Jesus Christ. And that kind of becomes his mission in church. And he begins to, or his mission in life. And he also writes a number of books in the New Testament. And one of those books that he writes is the book we're going to be in this morning, the book of 1 Corinthians. And the book of Corinthians is written because Paul receives some disturbing news from the church at Corinth. And it has to do with the division that exists in the church at Corinth. So Paul wants to address some of the problems that exist there. And just to give you even a little more background, Corinth was a port city. And Corinth was known for its wickedness. In fact, the, the word, there's, a, there's a Greek word, the verb form of Corinthian or Corinth, it's the verb form of it, actually means to be a fornicator. So this city is just full of evil. And as Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he's addressing these different problems that have come up that are creating division. And we're going to be in chapter 9, where Paul continues an argument that he started in chapter 8. And the argument has to do with Christians arguing, can you eat meat? Can a Christian eat meat that has been offered to an idol? And so Paul is dealing with that. And it's kind of like he's saying, you know what? What you've got to do is you can't be putting yourself first. You put yourself second. And so we're going to kind of look at what he has to say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to begin with verse 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to win as many as possible. Listen, this is strong language. We talked about slaves last week. He's saying, I I have made myself a slave. And people are like, Paul, why would you do that? 
Because like we talked about last week, we think about slavery in terms of color in the United States. But like we said last week, in the ancient Near East, anybody could become a slave. You miss a horse payment, they might take your son and your horse. So you didn't want to be indebted to anybody. You, you wanted to steer clear of that. And Paul's saying, I would voluntarily make myself a slave. And the reader's like, why in the world would you do that? And he answers them. To win as many as possible. To, to win as many as possible. It's like he's, doing, he's willing to do whatever it takes to win people to Jesus Christ. It's like he's saying, you know what? I've done a lot of damage to the church. I mean, I've done a lot of bad things. And I think Paul knows that he doesn't have that much longer left. And he's like, I want to do as much good as I can. I want to share Jesus Christ with as many people as I possibly can. And I will do whatever it takes. And so then he continues the thought in verse 20. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To which we all go, what? Right? I mean, it sounds a little bit confusing, doesn't it? But here's what he's saying. He said, to, be, to, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. So he's, he's telling him, he's using this example of, of, of putting your, yourself second. He's saying, you know what I will do? To talk to a Jewish person, to win a Jewish person, I will go under the Old Testament law. Even though we don't have to, we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. We don't need to keep all those different things that they talk about in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and, and those books there. He said, you don't have to do that anymore as a Christian. But he said, I'm willing to do that if that's what it takes. And then he continues his thought. He goes a step further in verse 21. He says, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Again, it's kind of like, what? I mean, Paul, could you kind of put it in, in plain English? You know, it's like first time you ever sign a mortgage contract or something, you know, they come out with a stack of papers that big and you have no idea really what you're sign, signing, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, come on, Paul, could you just put it in a little simpler language? And I think the ancient readers, when, when they read this, they agreed because it just kind of sounds confusing. Like, wait a minute, Paul, you said you're not under the law but you're somehow going to act like you are under the law, but somehow you're still under some other form of the law of God, which you call Christ's law. So you're telling us you pulled out of the Torah, the Old Testament stuff, but yet you're telling us that you're still staying in it, but you're, but you're not in it, and then there's this whole Christ law. We don't get it, Paul. Well, in verse 21, when he talks about those not under the law, he is talking about the Gentiles. So he said, I'll do whatever it takes to win the Jews if that means going under Old Testament law. But he said, when I'm talking to the Gentiles, that I'm not going to be under the law, but I'm still going to be under Christ's authority or God's authority. And when he says that, that's what he's talking about when he says he's under Christ's law. So what is the law of Christ? That might be a phrase that you're not familiar with. It's a phrase that Paul uses a few times in the New Testament. And then he just kind of uses that phrase and pushes forward with it through all of his different writings. 
The law of Christ is kind of Paul's shorthand for the command that Jesus gave us in John chapter 13. Remember John chapter 13, there's the Lord's Supper. And then at the end there, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. I'm going to give you a new law. Before he gives this command, you have to remember, you had to do the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You had to follow those eating, funny kind of eating things and all that kind of stuff and all those different regulations that we talked found in, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and those areas. But Jesus says, and, and then also there was the 613 laws that the Pharisees had put on there to declare your spirituality so we could measure your spirituality. And Jesus says, you know what? Getting rid of all that. This is the command that's going to replace all that. This, this is the law, the principle, so to speak. And it's really simple. We find it in John chapter 13 after the Lord's Supper. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that replaces everything else. And by the way, this is not a suggestion. It's a command from Jesus. You are to love one another. And if we love one another, he says the result of that is people will know that you are my disciple. In other words, the world's not very good. We're not very good at loving people that aren't like us, right? But in this, this new form, this new brand of, 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 of loving each other, this, this new brand of love, so to speak, this, this unique brand, he said, this is so unique that when people see you, they will know that you're my followers because it it's just not the way the world works. So it's very different. And so Paul takes this idea in his writings and in several other places and he uses it just kind of as a mantra and he just kind of pushes this idea forward in his different writings. So our marching orders as Christians is this law of Christ. And that means our conscience, the law of Christ is loving each other as Christ loved us ought to permeate our conscience. It ought to permeate our being. It ought to govern just about everything that we do. So the question is, what does that look like? And specifically, since we're talking about politics and church unity, what does having the law of Christ look like in those arenas? As Jesus followers, all of us, Regardless of your political persuasion, as we grow as Christians, our conscience or our very being should become hardwired into the law of Christ, which again means loving each other as Christ loved us. That means when we see something or do something that is contrary to that law of Christ, it should bother us. It should ding our conscience. And not just our individual consciences. It should ding the conscience of all of us collectively as a church. So he's saying, I want you to take your cue about treating other people by how Christ treated us. And then that should permeate your conscience. 
Let me give you a couple examples this morning of how the, the early Christians letting that permeate their conscience change the world. I kind of hinted at these just a little bit last week, but I want to give you a little more detail this morning. How, how just letting the law of Christ, loving each other as Christ loved you, changed. And this dynamic is really where the Western civilization comes from. It, it literally changed the world. So I mentioned to you last week, we talked a little bit about slavery. You know, back in ancient times, slavery just was. I mean, it just was the way of life. It, it is just what happened. It was not a moral issue. People didn't think much about it. You know, it, it was just the way life went. Some people were born to be ruled over and some people were born to be the rulers. That was just the way things were. And, uh, you know, they didn't think much about it. And in the 4th century B.C., Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, he said this when he was talking about slavery. For that some should rule and others be ruled over is a thing not only necessary, it's expedient. So he said, slavery is not only just necessary, it has to happen. And so slavery, it was just a common practice. I mean, to say that slavery wouldn't exist, that would be like saying, well, the sun's not going to come up tomorrow. I mean, it's just the way life was. Jump ahead 800 years. Fourth century AD. St. Augustine is one of the church fathers. Listen to what he says. Pretty famous guy. He said, no, slavery isn't expedient. It is the result of sin. Now, he didn't come up with that all by himself. Christians, almost as soon as they become, became believers, they realized that you can't have slaves and be other, loving other people as Christ loved you. We're all made in the image of God. We're not made to be ruled over by each other. And in, beginning in the first century, this began to change. And by the time it gets to the fourth century, you have people like St. Augustine saying it's made such an impact that it's changing the world. Let me give you another example. Emphasize, or exposure as they used to call it. Basically, this is how emphasize worked. It, it's, it's the killing of infants. Here's the way it would work. And this, this was just commonly accepted in communities in the Roman Empire. So you have a baby you don't want. Maybe you wanted a boy and it's a girl. Maybe there's a birth defect. Maybe your wife had a baby out of wedlock. It was an accepted common practice to be able to take that baby outside the city wall somewhere set it under a tree set it in the forest set it down by the river and then the baby's fate would be decided by the gods little g so as long as you didn't actually take the baby's life you could do that of course you know the baby's going to die but no technically the fates of the god would decide it that was Commonly accepted. That was practiced. But do you know, beginning in the first century, Christians would go out and they would get these children and bring them back into their families. Remember, a lot of these Christians, they're poor. They probably don't hardly have the money to feed their own children, but they're rescuing these babies. Why? Why would they do that? There's nothing in the New Testament or Old Testament that says you should do this. Because they realized those babies were made in the image of Christ. They realized that's what Christ would have done. 
And we're to love each other like Christ loved us. And they would go and they would get these babies. And over time, they begin to make a difference in the Roman Empire. By AD 300, after embracing Christianity, Emperor Constantine said this. He said, he declared emphasize a crime. Why the change? Because Christians are changing the way an entire empire thinks. And by the time we get to 374, 55 years later, the emperor Valentinian, he makes exposure setting a, a baby out a capital crime. You could be killed for doing that. I mean, this is amazing stuff. It's changed an empire. But that's what happens when you let the law of Christ permeate you. It changes villages and cities and nations. And in our own country, there's been changes because of people following through on this. And this, this, this principle, it transcends cultures, it transcends generations. I read a really interesting article this week. I, I found it on a, a news feed I was reading. And it's about this lady who is doing a, a gene, genealogical study of, of her family. And in her research, she discovered a book written in 1891 that mentioned this name, Kate Taylor Chester. And Kate Taylor Chester is in her lineage. And this is the exact quote from the book. Phineas Taylor once kept a Negro maid servant on a, the Burroughs farm outside of Boston. And then listen to this quote. Mr. Taylor obtained the child when a babe in Boston, making payment, therefore, with a box of butter. Let that sink in for just a moment. That a human life was valued at the price of a box of butter, which in that time was 12 cents a pound. A human life. 12 cents. Thankfully, we've moved a long way from this. But we're not all the way there. We all know that. With the problems and stuff that exist in our country. But the law of Christ, if we're going to continue to change, needs to be the epic center of Christian values. That loving each other as Christ loved us. It never goes out of date. It doesn't have a shelf life. And every generation has a responsibility to do that. And that's why it's so important for us as a church to be the salt and the light. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, hey, I'll go do whatever it takes to win those Jewish people to Jesus. I'll just do whatever it takes. Well, we are the conscience of our nation. And we need to shape our nation and that's why it's so important. We can't be doing that if we are divided over politics or pandemic rhetoric. Then we just look like everybody else. There's nothing in our love that makes us stand out to being any different from anybody else. That's why it's so crucial that we don't let this stuff divide us. Yes, vote who you want to vote for. Vote your conscience on that Tuesday in November. Say whatever you want about the pandemic. You're entitled to your opinion. But let's not let it divide us. Let's not let... We're better than that, like I said last week. 
And as a Christ follower, my conscience ought to be different as the Holy Spirit works in me and God changes me and transforms me and he, and he, and he gives me godly wisdom and he gives me godly knowledge. That's why this is just so important. And you know, one of the advantages that humans have over everything else like animals and stuff is just the fact that that we can build our knowledge and our wisdom from generation to generation. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate. Um, growing up, or just in my life, I've, we've always had a lot of dogs, or had dogs, I'll put it that way. And my dad actually trained dogs for Vietnam. Of course, that's what he did in the military. But we also always had a dog at home, a German Shepherd. And then later, as I've become an adult, we've had labs and mixed breeds and all that kind of stuff. The German Shepherds, they're an entire... A, a very highly intelligent breed, right? But you never have a German shepherd come up to you and go, well, my mama taught me that, and that's why I do that. And her mama taught her that, and that's why I do that. I mean, they're dogs, right? They're, they're dogs. They can't do that. But humans can do that. We have the, the ability, the, the gift to, to give knowledge and, and wisdom to the next generation. And as I think about that, I feel like in the 21st century, we, we have even more responsibility because of the knowledge and the wisdom that we have than the generations before us. Because we understand more. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate that. We understand more about how science works, history works, and all that. So if a four-year-old asks you, four years old, says, where do babies come from? You're going to answer their question, but you're going to answer it a lot different than if a 15-year-old asks you where babies come from. In fact, if a 15-year-old's like, you should know, right? And if a 25-year-old graduate student asks you where babies come from, there's a real problem, right? Now, you're not going to lie to the four-year-old, but you're going to accommodate where they're at. And as, as, as believers, I believe in the 21st century, we have even more responsibility because we have more knowledge and wisdom than the, the ancients in, in, in the book of Genesis, the, the pre-Tylenol, never took a cold shower people, right? We have more knowledge than they do. So that knowledge and that wisdom, we combine that with the law of Christ and that should help us determine you know, the, the, the policies that we support and the, and the political parties that we support. Knowledge and wisdom. It should impact us. It should change us. Again, let me see if I can kind of illustrate this. So, knowledge and wisdom. If, if you have a child that gets sick, you're probably not going to bring that child to me, right? If you do, you're in trouble. I'll just put it that way. Because outside of praying, there's not a whole lot I can do. But you're not, because you, your wisdom and your knowledge tells you to take that child to the doctor. But do you know 200 years ago, it would have been a pretty common practice if your child was sick to bring him to a pastor or a priest. And, you know, the pastor or the priest would pray over him. And, and if something really serious is wrong with your child, you still might call me to, to pray over that child. But you're not bringing the child to me to heal the child. Because we have so much more knowledge and wisdom than they did 200 years ago. We understand. And we don't see a conflict with that. 
because we understand how God works and God uses medicine and those types of things. So we intuitively incorporate that knowledge and wisdom that we have. We, we, we just do that. But here's the rub. And I know some of you are thinking this morning, okay, Dennis, I, I, I've all heard all this. You might have framed it a little bit differently, but we already know all of this. But here's the rub. The way we apply this law of Christ and, and the way that the, the Holy Spirit works wisdom and knowledge into us The reason that we have work to do is this. Because where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you take a stand depends on where you sit. That's not an original phrase to me. Some of you may have heard that phrase before. It's by a guy by the name of Rufus Miles. He was part of the Kennedy-Johnson administration, and he came up with that. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that your cultural context determines a lot about how you think or where you sit, to use his words. Where you live, who you're related to, how much money you have, your education, the environment you grew up in. Your cultural context determines your perspective in life. It determines what you see. It determines what you experience, how you see it, how you interpret it. And this is not true just for Christians, it's true for all of us. That's why if I can kind of push you a little bit this morning, you don't see any conflict between your faith and politics. You're like, man, I'm glad you're doing this series. Some of you have been thinking because, man, I got some friends that need to hear this. I mean, I'm a Republican and my faith comes first and I got some Democratic friends. They need to hear this. And some of you are thinking just the other way. I'm a Democrat and my faith supports me. And man, have I got some friends that that needed to hear this. Because I got my faith first. Probably in both of those cases, it's not necessarily because you have your faith first. Because your political views, and you know this, don't exist in a vacuum. And just pausing to recognize this just pausing in our thinking to be more mature and not divided over a church as a church, as the universal church over politics and pandemic rhetoric. And couldn't we use a little more maturity in in our country today when it comes to these kind of issues? Can I get an amen? Yeah, a little more maturity. Don't get me going this morning, I'm just telling you. But yeah, And please understand, I'm not suggesting that we all get in the middle and have this kumbaya moment and start this this new party or something. I'll say it again, there's always going to be disagreement between the kingdom of God and political parties. That's okay. As long as we are mature enough to handle it. Not let it divide us. All of your your political views and values, just like everything in, in, in life, They're they're determined by that that thing that he said again about your cultural context. Where you stand depends on where you sit, that, that kind of idea. And listen, we don't change what we believe, but we gain understanding in terms of why other people act the way they do, believe the way they do, and then we won't experience division. 
So I'm not suggesting that you change your views, change your parties, or anything like that. I'm just saying, let's try to learn why other people have a different perspective. Because those things I mentioned, those dynamics, all affect us. Where we live, how we grew up, how we were raised, how we were educated, what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we've seen other people experience. I mean, think about your parents for a minute. Maybe your dad was a staunch Republican. Why was he that way? Is it just because of his faith? Probably not. There were probably other factors. Maybe your mom was a die-hard Democrat. Was that just because of her faith? No, there are probably other factors. I grew up in the 60s. I grew up on Air Force bases and in West Texas. That, That was my upbringing. Being raised on Air Force bases and in West Texas was a lot different, I'm sure, than being raised in the South like many of you were. Just just different. And then you talk different time periods, 60s, 70s, 80s, some of you 2000s only and up. Well, that changes the way you look at things. That doesn't mean we dismiss the significance of our faith. But we're just saying, let's just try to step back And begin to look at things a little bit differently. Try to understand where other people are coming from. Because where you stand depends on where you sit. And doing that, we kind of open our hands up and we open our hearts up. And we just try to, to understand other people's positions. So here's what it looks like. The law of Christ. The holy, you know, loving each other as Christ loved us. Wisdom and knowledge, God changes us. And so for the last couple minutes here, I just want to make a few suggestions about how we do this. How do we do this? And I'm not going to share anything that you probably haven't heard. This is not new information. But sometimes you just have to say what people know so people kind of remember it. So just three things real quick. Learn to listen Listen to people who don't experience the world the way you do. Just learn to listen. Just learn to listen to other people's perspectives. Not just Christian people, but non-Christian people. The haves and the have-nots. Young and old and black and white and married and single and those that love the military and those that don't care for the military. Whatever. Just learn to listen. And then once you listen, number two is this, learn something. Don't just say, well, I listen and that's all I'm doing. Bless God. No, we don't have to be afraid of opinions. Our faith is tethered to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We don't have to be scared of anything. We don't have to be scared of anybody's arguments. We don't have to be scared of other people's opinions. Be curious. I read a great quote from a guy by the name of Sam Harris, and this is what he says. He says, pay attention to the frontiers of your ignorance. He's actually an atheist, which obviously I don't agree with, but I think that's a really good quote. Be a student, not just a critic. That's what he's saying. Dennis, don't be afraid to read a book that doesn't necessarily going to be a book that you agree with. Don't be afraid to read an article or watch a television show or whatever because you might not agree with everything. Be a student, 
not just a critic. We're all pretty good critics, aren't we? Tell me if this happens at anybody's house besides my house. Maybe you got a DVR. And so you're watching the news, and you pause it, and then you give your commentary on whatever they're talking about. Anybody in here do that besides me? My kids love that, I'm telling you, right? I mean, they just love when I do that. And, and, and my wife, she loves it too, right? No, they're like, Dad, just hit the play button, right? Sean's over here just grinning from ear to ear because he knows what I'm talking about. It's like, just hit the play button and leave it alone, Dad, right? Because we're, we're good critics. But let's be good students too. Can I push just a little bit harder? Because we've been doing this in this series anyway. If you don't learn anything, if you just quit learning, and if you automatically push away everything that doesn't agree with your flawed view of the world, because all of our views of the world are flawed in, in, in some way, if you just push that away, you know what happens? You are just going to become a critical old grouch. I'm just telling you. And that's just not in politics. It's in church, talking about churches, and methodology, or whatever. That's just what happens. To put it into our current climate, if you're a Democrat, all your Republican brothers and sisters are not crazy. And if you're a Republican, all your Democratic brothers and sisters are not crazy. Nobody's crazy. They're just coming from a different place and see the world in a different way. And you know, as long as we keep saying things like, well, I don't understand how anybody can believe that. I just, don't know. I just don't see how they could do that. How can you possibly believe that or say that? Do you know what that says about you? You have something to learn because you don't understand how somebody else could think that way. That's what we're talking about. Just trying to understand somebody else's perspective because everybody's behavior, everybody's response, everybody's politics makes sense to them. Again, I'm not telling you to change the way you vote, the way you think, or anything like that. I'm just talking about reducing the division, doing away with the division. Last one is this. I'll wrap up. Love. Love. That's the last one. Never burn a relational bridge over a political view. Don't do it. Well, they started it. So what? Don't start the fire at your end of the bridge. Don't destroy a relationship over a political view or a pandemic view. That person that, that you're getting in that tiff with, that you're ready to destroy the relationship over, that's somebody that Jesus died for. Think about that. And we're to love each other as Christ loved us. Just don't go there. I mean, we talked about this before. Political views change over time. What you believe today, you might not believe in 20 years from now. So why would you destroy a relationship over that? Hopefully in 10 or 15 years, we're going to look back on this pandemic and it just be, oh, that thing, boy, I'm glad that was over with. But are you willing to destroy relationships over differing point of views about the pandemic and how we should be handling it? When 10 or 15 years, it'll just be a distant memory? We're all people who Christ died for. We're better than that. Listen, learn, and love. 
And again, I, I, I know a couple weeks ago when I, I said this then, and I'll say it again today, I know some of you are thinking this morning, Dennis, you are just naive. I'm not naive. It can happen. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, these, this rabbi with 12 disciples in the middle of a desert with no political clout whatsoever changed the world. 21 centuries later, the world is still changed. That was naive. I'm not being naive. So again, what we've ended with each week, disagree politically, love unconditionally, and pray for unity. Pray with me, please. Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, we just uh, thank you for your word and the way that it impacts current situations, and Father, it just, it's timeless. Father, I just pray for all of us this morning. Father, just, just pray that we look at our own hearts, and we're just in a time when things are so divided, and there's name-calling, and people take positions in opposite ways, and Father, just help us to to look at other people's perspective. Not that we have to change our own, but Father, just to understand where other people are coming from and, and help us to be Christians that reflect the light of you. Help us to be salt and light. Help people to look at us and say, boy, those people are different. Because that's what you're talking about when you say that people will know that we're your disciples. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.